Pod Pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. It is a gorgeously sunny day as I'm recording this, the kind of wintry weather that makes you feel a bit uplifted and hopeful and so it feels quite appropriate to be introducing a guest whose work and values and way of working do the same. That guest is Elham Shakarafar, a BAFTA-nominated producer and winner of the 2017 Women in Film and TV's BBC Factual Award and one of Screen International's 2018 Brit 50 Producers on the Rise. Elham's multi-award winning credits include The Reluctant Revolutionary, The Runner, multi-award winning A Syrian Love Story, Even When I Fall, Biffa winner for Best Documentary Almost Heaven, Island, Of Love and Law and Ayuni. Her work has been broadcast internationally and screened at festivals including Berlinale, IDFA, Rotterdam and CPH Docs. Elham was also a recipient of the 2016 BFI Vision Award. I was both excited and nervous to speak to Elham because she has produced a body of work that is interrogative and curious and empathic and I wanted to come to the conversation with that same energy, knowing that we would likely cover some complex topics. And we did. We spoke about the vulnerabilities and ethical considerations inherent to making documentary, how she prioritises relationships and intentionality as opposed to access, what a greater level of respect for documentary filmmaking would look like, why and how she distributes her own films through her company Hakawati, and also how she persists to keep telling stories that are meaningful and difficult and heartfelt. It was a really gratifying conversation and one that I'm really glad to have had, so I hope you enjoy it just as much. This is episode 103 of Best Girl Grip. So I'd love to know whether you went to university and if so, what you studied there. I did go to university. I studied Persian literature and Islamic studies back in 2000. And why did you choose that subject? Well, I mean, it's funny because I actually didn't conceptualise going to university in this country or at all, in a sense. I really wanted to be a journalist. Um, When I was at school, there was an intervention (laughs) that in the shape of the UCAS book that was kind of presented with certain pages, like conveniently open, because actually it was clear that that would speak to me. I think I've always been interested in literature and storytelling. I grew up mainly in France and studied in the French system in the literary kind of philosophy. And that's everything that I was interested in. So the idea of learning how to read and write properly in Farsi was really appealing, but also to kind of delve into that space of poetry and to sit with that space and to learn about the origins of Islam was really fascinating to me. I think it's it seems in a way very far from what I do today, but actually I'm informed by that knowledge or that learning every day and in everything that I've made. Absolutely, I'm sure. And you mentioned journalism there, and I'm wondering whether you had a sense of kind of what kind, you know, broadcast, print, where were you kind of thinking about moving into after graduating? I think it was more the kind of trying to understand and trying to uh, to kind of delving into spaces of unknown, I guess, that motivated me. And it was also an interest in, I think, listening. To me, the space of journalism was the space of asking questions and understanding things better and listening. And I think that's what I was tending towards. So it's an interesting, in a sense, you know, I found myself in the space of documentary. It's like, a, you know, it's an interesting intersection of those two of those two things. And do you recall having like an aha moment where you felt a gravitational pull towards the film industry? Not really. (laughs) When I left university, I also was, I felt quite lost. I didn't particularly engage with the culture of the university that I went to and with the kind of notion that everything was very hierarchical and 
powerful and everyone around me went on to do like high powered jobs with lots of money and mm. I was really not didn't really know what I wanted to do. I studied visual anthropology, an MA in visual anthropology, and, and that was a really interesting insight into, I suppose, the beginnings of documentary, the kind of colonial history, but also the beginnings of film and storytelling through film. But I also learned from that that I didn't particularly want to make films per se, or like be the author of films. I wasn't sure about that role or that place. So essentially, I didn't. I, I started working in a community centre and I worked there for almost 10 years and making films kind of just it came to me rather than me going towards it how did it come to you so I worked in a community centre in uh, Newham in East London, working on a project with unaccompanied minors. And there were there were always lots of creative projects happening in that space, which I sometimes facilitated, but I was never I was never wanting to kind of make work from the experience of working with people and from their experiences. I suppose with today's language, you'd kind of say that that's quite extractive and that's something that I kind of perceived already then. But I was in contact with so many people who came to do all sorts of different photography projects or... Uh, literature projects or writing projects yeah so so within the community center space there were often lots of different artists and filmmakers and photographers and one filmmaker who came along to I think um, volunteer as part of a photography project was Saeed Taji Faruqi and he was making a film about a long distance runner from the western Sahara and to my shame I'd never heard about the western Sahara or at least I'd never understood it from the perspective that he was telling the story from which was that it's the last colony in Africa it's under Moroccan occupation and I'd never conceived of that in that way which was also very interesting to me because I'd grown up in France and surrounded by you know with many North African friends and peers and it was interesting that that kind of that narrative was so powerful that I had not questioned it. So initially, my work with Said started off as just fundraising, essentially. Right. And little by little, there wasn't a producer attached to the project. And I just took more and more responsibilities in relation to it and mm. became the producer. But I worked still in the centre for many years before I, I kind of made producing the, the main thing that I did. I'm wondering what your relationship to that role was at the time and whether, you know, someone had to say, oh, you're the producer or gradually just in the doing of it, you realised that that was what your title was. Yeah, it was much more in the doing of it. And actually, I think about it now and I think, I mean, every single film that I've produced has been a learning. Um, there's no blueprint for how to make films. And I think with documentaries and I've tended to make films that are much more like placing a frame around a reality or following a reality or a story as it unfolds. And you can't really predict, you can't predict anything. You don't know what's going to happen. You can't plan how long it's going to take. You don't know what you're going to need you're following something and you're also taking on the responsibility of deciding what it means. And that's a very nebulous space. And I don't know whether you can necessarily prepare for that. And every single film will have its own, you know, complexities and realities that you need to sit down and consider and think through. I don't know whether I fully thought through, this is the title that I now have, this is who I am. Given that unpredictability, I'm wondering how you kind of approach producing and prepare to deal with all of the kind of problems or challenges that you might encounter. If I thought about it too much, probably I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you just never know what's on the horizon. But, you know, there are so many films where you're involved and engaged with a group of people or with a subject or with a story, with a person or a family, and you can't stop. You know, you have to keep going. And I was thinking about this in relation to a Syrian love story, which is, is probably the film that most people will, will know that I've produced. And, you know, that film was made 
over six years, I think. And Sean was filming from about 2009. From 2011, when the revolution in Syria started, broadcasters, financiers, people were saying, now, now's the time, you need to finish your film. This is when the film matters. This is when it means something. And that's not what our priority was. You know, we weren't working to that framework. We weren't working to that kind of structural notion of what matters. We weren't making news. We were engaged in, in a relationship with the family and we were watching or bearing witness to what was happening to that family. And our responsibility was to them. And the strength of the film lies in the fact that that responsibility was, was the guiding force rather than everything else that happened all around. And, you know, every year there seemed to be this other reason why everyone would say like, this is, this is now, you've, you've missed it. Like this is, this was the time that you should have done this or should have done that. I just want to give a bit of context to that relationship. The Sean that you're referring to is Sean McAllister, who is a filmmaker you've worked with several times. I believe your first feature credit for you, but also with him, was The Reluctant Revolutionary. I'm wondering if you can speak to how you arrived at that moment. Yeah, I met Sean through another producer who had seen him. You know, I, I was working on The Runner and a producer that I was consulting with on The Runner told me that there was this director that he thought I would relate to and um, who needed someone to work with because he was he had these he was juggling these two projects and would I meet with him and that was Sean and Sean was basically at that time between filming in Syria and filming in Yemen and I think he had a sense that he was making something in these two very different places and it was very difficult to work out kind of what to do with each and everything felt slightly chaotic and we met, you know, our first meeting was very, you know, we just met, had a cup of tea and kind of just talked about what matters, really, what, why he was making those films. I think I really understood something of Sean's intentionality and also the footage that he had shot already was just really uh, direct and honest. And for Sean, I mean, he always says character is king. And you can really see that for him, relationship is the central point, point and central part of his filmmaking. And I really responded to that. I really related to it. And I think having worked, you know, having worked tangentially, but also being from, you know, I'm, my family's from Iran. Um, I'm very used to seeing depictions of Iran or the broader Middle East in certain ways. And I saw that actually he was trying, he had an affinity to the region, which was based around people and it was based around food and it was based around how much fun he had when he was there which was also very different to what I was hearing, what I was seeing. And, you know, the fact that I was working with Saeed and lots of people kept pitching to me ideas that I should make about all sorts of controversial things. And that's never been interesting to me. And there was just nothing in what he was trying to do that jarred. And what I appreciated from Sean's side is also that he obviously, you know, was a very established filmmaker at that time, but it didn't mean that my perspective was any less valid You've said a couple of things that signal to me you have a strong moral centre or sense of unwavering commitment to doing things, I guess, honestly or with care, as opposed to being led by the market or external opinion. And I'm wondering how you go about sticking with that or uh, keeping that gut instinct alive. It's a good question. I think you keep having to ask yourself questions. Actually, you can't assume that just because once you've done things in one way, that's always the right way. I think your intention is really your North Star and being truthful about why it is you're doing something is really helpful as a guide for yourself and for what it is you're making, particularly when what you're making impacts on so many other people but has the potential to be a kind of bigger statement about something or exist in a bigger space. 
So I think it's it's that kind of reevaluating and, and asking yourself questions and also just this kind of honesty with yourself, what it is that matters to you in that moment. And I think one thing that we rarely talk about, and I understand why also, because it can be quite tricky, is is the things that we don't do. And I get pitched a lot of projects that kind of on the top line might seem that they fit what I've made in the past because they address a certain space or you know they're set in a certain country but what motivates me or what interests me is why someone's doing something and if I understand why and that chimes with why I think it's important then that then I can believe in it but that happens actually quite rarely and it's down to lots of things it's not you know something might an incredible film might be made it just might not be right for me at that point in my life or at that at that time in preparing for this interview, I was reading another interview that you'd given and you were talking about how filmmaking was sort of, I guess you're managing a team at the peak of everyone's vulnerabilities. I'm wondering how you go about, I guess, creating a space where people feel able to be vulnerable, but then also, as you say, kind of managing it in a way that is still productive to, to the environment of, of making a film. I think documentary in particular is a space of vulnerability because it's so malleable and it's so mm. open. And the responsibility of making something out of nothing in the sense that, you know, you put the frame around something. If you didn't put that frame around something, that something could have been anything. But if you're going to lock it down to be something, you really need to know what that something is and why you're doing what you're doing. And that's a real, that's a real responsibility. I think it can become a burden if it's not done in the right way. If you don't, if you're in, you know, your intentions aren't honest, for example, if you end up doing something that's kind of harmful, even, and that can happen, you can't necessarily foresee everything that's going to happen in the course of making the film. You also can't foresee how your film will be accepted into the world or which world it will kind of land into. So I think there's a, there's a lot of vulnerability in documentary and and. I would say that working in a community centre in the space of real vulnerability on the front lines was preparation for working in documentary. But I also think it's really problematic that there are so few structures where we can talk about these things, where we can understand how unprepared, I think, many teams or many people can be for actually the extent of complexity that you engage with when you start to delve into people's lives and realities. One thing that I've been noticing a lot around, I mean, the conversations around COVID have completely just like dulled down into this is what everyone now knows. But at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this notion that we could, you know, we could increase budgets to engage with like COVID precautions that were needed. And there was all sorts of kind of like industry coming together to discuss these things. And those conversations have kind of like essentially just become about money when they could have really been a space to think about care and to think about if we're concerned about COVID because this is a space where there's like this risk factor, then that's something that could be applied more broadly and, and we could think about mental health budget lines. We could think about even accessibility questions, you know, to, to ensure that people are centred on their own terms in order to be the best that they could be. It's something I think about a lot and, and I've, I work with very few people and really tiny teams because actually it's a lot of time to give people time and to give people care and, and there isn't a blueprint and I don't think there ever will be for well-being and mental health and every team is its own alchemy you know and, and every team within a different context is its own alchemy you add something you take something else away and everything shifts more recently I've, I've tended to work more with female directors and the things that you're overcoming in a space 
are so different because you need to, it's almost like you constantly need to reassert your reason or your power or your kind of permission to be somewhere. And that's a constant battle of confidence, essentially. It's engaging with spaces that all spaces essentially are really patriarchal. They are really, they're really divided along lines and things that that I don't think produce the best work, but also that don't indicate a level of care for any form of difference. Uh, You're right, it is an important topic to talk about and I I want to kind of fold it into as well like the content of of your films because they traverse so many different subjects and arguably they're all serious but you know in ways that you deal with them with kind of levity and joy as well but I'm wondering you know access is such a big part of documentary in general but it feels to me like a big part of the films that you make and and telling stories with care and -hmm. with intention I'm wondering how you go about navigating those relationships you know how do you gain the access to tell those stories and ensure that you're not being extractive a word that you used earlier I think the word access is also really interesting. It's like it's become a really significant word of late, mm. but it's, I think it's a very, um, I'd like, uh, you know, I, I, it's something that I would pair with intention because I think without intention, your access becomes like very much like this. It's like a capitalist calling card in a sense. And I think so much of, so many of the documentaries that we see at the moment are products of access. And they are not good storytelling, but they're also quite problematic storytelling because their their reason for being is linked only to access. You know, I think it's it's saying that it's not just because you can tell a story that you should tell a story. The story story is really in the telling, and and the telling comes about through this kind of intentionality of how are you going to tell the story, and you figure out the how because you've thought about why. Every one of the films that I've produced has been the result of relationships so you know it's individual directors or teams that build a relationship or an understanding around a certain subject and the film develops around that and often my role has been in enabling that space or centering that space both whether it's the relationship or or the filmmaker or the subject to kind of make it happen but the access question starts with relationship and with an intentionality and I think there are things that would seem surprising I suppose that are actually a product of relationship so to give you an example I was talking the other day about Even When I Fall by Sky Neal and Kate McLaren, which tells the story of a circus in Nepal that was set up by survivors of trafficking in circuses in India and so the film is following them as they set up Circus Kathmandu which is a circus through which they reclaim their circus skills and they tell stories through them to educate people about trafficking and there's a scene in the film in which one of the young women Sital goes to meet her mother and confront her about why she was sold into the circus and so you could ask the question of access like how did we get that scene but in fact it was Sital who asked for the film team to be there while she was having this conversation with her mother and to me that's testament to the relationship that was built even when I fall shot was filmed over seven years so it was a relationship built on trust and understanding and on a journey that she went on which started at a point where she was fairly young and didn't know as a returnee to Nepal where she was from what her real name was where her family lived who her family was to a place where she actually could meet them and the place where she could ask them that question was one that she wanted 
to be witnessed or, or kind of held by the people who'd been on this journey with her. And I think that's what documentary can do. And that's what that's more around trust and relationship and intentionality than it is really about access. You reference there that even when I fall took seven years or you were filming over a period of seven years. And I think this is true of lots of documentaries, you know, they're kind of stop start and they're very long and protracted journeys. But as producer and and the kind of you're the engine behind the project, it sort of it starts and ends with you. I'm wondering how you maintain the energy required to, to keep the momentum going on that project. I mean, I should say that even when I fall didn't start with me at all. And I joined the project at a certain point where many things had been kind of clarified, like the language of the film had started to, to take shape. And that was also a testament to the amount of time that it had taken, because sometimes, I mean, sometimes always it takes time to find the right language. To, to actually answer your question, the question of like momentum, how do you keep going? I think when you commit to something, and then you start to build a relationship with it. There's a point where you can't let go of it, in a sense. You're responsible to that thing. And then you're responsible to that story. With A Syrian Love Story, for example, we it was a very challenging film to make because it was also about a family falling apart. And it was, it was challenging to experience. And then it was challenging to edit because we were essentially watching those scenes over and over and over again, trying to work out how to make them into a cohesive narrative. And initially that film was edited in a certain way that was a much kind of neater, simpler narrative. And it was a cut that was signed off by everyone who was involved in the film. And after we kind of sent it off to a few festivals and Sean had gone off to do this jury duty in Russia, I remember, I called him up and I said, I've just withdrawn it. I just didn't feel it was right. <laughs> and he said, I know. <laughs> and we went back into the edit for like a year. And it was really painful to get to the edit of the film as it was finished because it meant leaning into the mess of life essentially and not having just neat ends or not having the kind of ideal arc of how a story you know should where it should tend to I suppose and and I think that that kind of the confidence to do that comes from a tight like the commitment of the time that you've put into it all of that time that that journey was experienced we couldn't just box it into the obvious structure we had to commit to what it was what, what it was saying in a much bigger way and I think that's that takes time so I think there are lots of rewards in in listening to what the passage of time is telling you with even when I fall similarly we had you know we imagined that the film would end with them performing in Glastonbury it was this high note it was really exciting they'd achieved something but this earthquake happened in Nepal very quickly after they went back and it shifted everything about how we understood the film. And, I, and I'm really grateful that we stopped, that we paused and that we thought about what it meant to the story we were telling. Because for us to have ended that film in Glastonbury would have been a really kind of, you know, this like clear kind of fairy tale arc, but also a really kind of colonial notion of, you know, you've made it because you've traveled to the West and you've done this big show and everyone's really happy and proud of you. And actually what really mattered to the circus was to, was to establish themselves within their own communities and within their own space and on their own terms in Nepal. And I think that's what they achieved. But I think, you know, if you think about it, just like a Syrian love story, just like many other films, 
it's that committing to what time is actually teaching you and telling you and it's stopping and listening and not kind of imposing the structure based on what you think should have happened or what you wish could have happened or what feels neat, but on what actually did happen and what it taught you about everything you don't know and about ending a film in a space that's kind of a bit open-ended, a bit unclear, not Mm. necessarily happy, a bit bittersweet. And to me, that stands the test of time as well, Mm. because it, it, it makes this the story a bit more timeless you know storytelling as circular rather than storytelling as linear I want to come back to this idea of the emotional challenges of filmmaking particularly in documentary particularly in some of the films that you've made you know you talk about Syrian love story and watching a family fall apart but even in films like Almost Heaven and Of Love and Law you're sort of watching loneliness and injustice kind of on the screen and there's a heaviness there and I'm wondering how you contend with that whether that ever takes its toll on you, I guess also how you debrief from having mm-hmm. lived with that subject and those feelings for so long. Mm-hmm. On one hand, I want to say it's it's really important to um, to know where to switch off or how to kind of draw certain lines. Again, I think it's something that I learned working in a community centre and working on the front line of extremely complex and vulnerable situations and situations where you're dealing with laws that are inhumane and problematic and you can't change everything but you can impact on the situation by being clear by being responsible by being reliable by being consistent and I think it's the same with say a documentary relationship whether it's subjects or teams I think it's like remembering that everyone is both a person and a professional and that includes you yourself as well and I think that's really a kindness that you can give yourself and you must in these spaces the toll of these things for me has not been from the making of these films I think you know for me meeting people and being able to celebrate people like Fumi and Kazu in, in Of Love and Law or meeting the families of people who we see die throughout Ireland is such privilege and it's such an inspiration and I think I it's something that has really given me so much I think what's taken a toll has been to see the world into which we bring these films I think it's to see the industry into which we bring these films I don't know that this industry often respects documentary the way that documentary could be or should be respected I think the way that documentary has come to be kind of equated with like I don't know, reality TV or kind of like really formatted or just like celebrity biopic after celebrity biopic is actually really problematic for the world. And I think we see that in the governments that we have. But I think that takes a toll on me a lot more because it it shows that actually, you know, the time that we spend caring about things is, is belittled somehow because it's not being celebrated or it's not being respected or it's not being given some space. And I think that's a mistake because actually I've seen young people watch Even When I Fall and I know that when they leave that cinema they feel that they can do things that they might have questioned that they could do before. In these last 10 years I guess, 12 years that I've been working, the work that we do is so dependent on this kind of combination of serendipity and luck but also these market forces which aren't, they're not working for the same reason that we work they're not coming from the same place. They're coming from a place of profit, I suppose. This is also what the film industry is. The film industry is an industry. It's a creative space that is fueled by the need to make money. So it's a real problem for documentary. And it's a real problem for what we think is possible with documentary. 
I mean, it's a real problem for democracy. It's a real problem for the imagination. It's a real problem for kind of any form of emancipation or kind of existing on your own terms. I'd like to know what the kind of appropriate level of respect for documentary would look like to you. You know, what would you like to see more of? I started distributing films because distributors didn't seem to think that there were audiences for the films that I was producing. And I felt differently. And I'm so glad I did that because it took me back to the ground in a sense. Again, it goes back to working in a community centre. In a sense, when I started working in film, I, I felt that working in the micro space was not enough. And for me, filmmaking was a way of working in a macro space. Once you've made a film, actually, what's really helpful is to go back to the micro because the people that give value to your work are people. It's just everyday human beings who want to go and learn something or experience something or feel something or enjoy something. And so distribution was really interesting because it was a space of kind of learning how to communicate to the audiences that you know are there. It's not that you need to build new audiences, it's that there are lots of audiences that are underserved because nobody bothers to speak that language or bothers to kind of go into those spaces. Of course, I'm talking quite a few years ago and now there are many, many spaces that do a lot of interesting work that didn't exist before and that I'm very grateful for. Audiences always give the respect that I expect because if, if you bought a cinema ticket to go to see a documentary, it means that you already believe that that's a cinema experience for you and that you want to give it your time and that you're going to put your phone away for two hours and not talk to anyone else while you sit with somebody and witness or experience or discover or whatever it is that you're going to feel as you watch something. And that's as much respect as you'll give to any other film. I think all the structures around documentary are problematic. You know, we have very few funding spaces for documentary. There's a cap on the amount of funding we get. And yet our films are just as could be just as expensive because if you're making a film over seven years. I mean, essentially, we're subsidising everything in how the film is being made because it's made over so long. It's partly made over so long because there's so little money, because it takes so long to raise the money, mm. because it's difficult to raise money when you can't predict exactly what's going to happen and that's a problem for everyone. So I think financing in terms that make sense to documentary would be one level of respect. I think a kind of discussions that would be on a level that respects the form would mean something. You know, we can't be as filmmakers, as documentary makers, the only people taking risks. There have to be people who jump in with us. Mm. So when I say respect, I really mean it in the terms of like create structures that will actually enable us to work with our work that aren't just designed for fiction or that aren't just designed for extraction and to recognize that actually documentaries and a good documentary can stand the test of time in ways that you don't expect. When we finished Island by Stephen Eastwood, we finished that film with no, no with very little financing. It was only development and financing that we managed to raise, Stephen raised for that film. And that film is now used by the NHS to educate nurses and doctors around end of life, death and dying. So that film that was finished in 2017, two years before this pandemic took over and suddenly death and dying was everyday news in a way that has never been before on such a wide scale. It's really interesting to me because if it was respected a little bit more, would our industry have appreciated what it was that we did with that film and that we've created a resource for free that's used by the NHS, our disempowered NHS? I, I think there's there's so much that we're kind of missing 
not appreciating in what this form has to give and what it has to tell. And for me, it really is a mirror onto our world and, and the choices that we make around how to tell these stories are real responsibilities because of that. There needs to be a little bit more thought about how we do things um, around documentaries and to recognise the, the great power that lies within them or around them and that's untapped and that goes untapped in a world that's frankly broken. First of all, thank you for expanding on, on that because that was a really eloquent answer. But also you mentioned there that Ireland is now kind of being packaged and utilised as a resource, which ties in with this title that is kind of being attached to a few of your films, which is Impact Producing. Can you go into a bit more detail as to kind of what that is and also how you go about elevating the impact and, and getting films kind of beyond cinema screens and kind of into other areas of society where they can be useful? The first thing I'll say is that I don't think any of the films I've produced have been produced with a kind of message or a purpose per se, and that always the impact kind of goal or idea has, has come about around the film, the finished film, where we realise there's something there that we can do something more with. And I think that's a really important distinction because I think documentary in such a vulnerable space, because of the way that impact is talked about and because of the way that it's, it's kind of funded and all the partnerships around it, which are amazing, it's become assumed that documentaries need to have a purpose in order to exist. So just to say that every film that we've built an impact campaign around has been a result of what we observed within the film or how it was perceived. With Island, for example, the reason why we developed this toolkit, we worked with this amazing palliative doctor, Catherine Mannix, to write that toolkit, which is freely available on our website, was that we observed that in every single one of our screenings, there were junior doctors or sometimes nurses or people within the kind of medical professions who talked about seeing certain things or discussing certain things for the first time. And we started, obviously, the, the film was devised with lots of different relationships and with relationships with palliative care doctors. And so we were already kind of in conversation with certain spaces, but we realised from the response that audiences had and who was in those audiences, how powerful it could be for teams who actually worked on the front lines. At first, we we had cinema screenings with end-of-life doulas present to kind of facilitate, but then it developed into this kind of toolkit. And, and you know, the reason why we also thought about facilitation is that we realised that people were worried about going to the cinema. And then when they were in the cinema, they watched the film, it's 90 minutes long, and they stayed for the duration of the Q&A, and then they just didn't want to leave. People wanted to kind of stay in that space. It's like it had opened a door and it had enabled the thinking around something that they'd never been able to think about before. And so it's really in listening, we thought, okay, there are things that we should do with this. What could those, those things be? With Even When I Fall, we talked with Circus Kathmandu about what mattered most to them. And so the impact campaign was essentially to enable them to be more sustainable, to enable them free use of film, and to partner them with an ethical recruitment company that would actually give a solution in a sense. So, you know, what they were doing was, was traveling around the country, talking and educating people about trafficking, but also giving an alternative where you could not buy into this, you know, deeply problematic for various different reasons, reality, and there is an alternative. Film by film, I think we think about, is there something that could or that should be done around it? And also, do we as a team have the right resources or the energy to, to engage with this? Or is there someone somewhere better placed 
to do that work. That's mm. the case with Ayumi, for example, by Yasmin Feta, which is about forcible disappearance in Syria. And in fact, Nora, who's one of the key characters of the film, has set up an organization dealing with forcible disappearance. And, you know, Nora is like a driving force in the film's impact campaign. Yes, there are many things that we're doing. We're working with the Syria campaign. We've worked with Amnesty International and various different organizations. But really, what we can also do in our strongest impact is to make the film available to Nora whenever she wants to use it. And I think sometimes impact is as simple as recognizing something like that, or can be as huge as wanting to shift something or change something. I want to come back to talking about your production company, because you mentioned there that you distribute. And so you're, yeah, you cover production, distribution, curation. I'm wondering kind of why it was important to you to kind of span those three pillars, you know, whether that was born out of necessity or whether it was an intention perhaps to be more sustainable. Kind of talk to me about the, yeah, the ambition or the thought process behind that. Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say is that made it sound really grand, but Hakawati is essentially myself. Sometimes there's someone else. I have amazing social media support from Emma Green, who's wonderful. And there are various different people who've worked with Hakaweti over the years. But at the moment, it's a very tiny operation. And I wouldn't say that we distribute currently. And I think we have distributed our own films. Often it was a question of ensuring that things were done in the same way that the production happened, which was to centre the right things. So Hakaweti means storyteller in Arabic. And for me, production is a question of storytelling. Distribution is also a question of storytelling. It's a question of what narrative you want to build around something and how it will take shape in the world. Curation is also a question of storytelling. It's a question of almost like a meta-narrative. But, and, you know, as a curator, I've worked mainly with films from the Arab world, Iranian films. And I think, you know, given I'm positioned here in the UK... And I'm conscious that I'm constantly involved in a kind of act of translation. And that act of translation is a form of storytelling. I need to build something around these films or kind of around collections of films that enable you to engage with them, not necessarily with the notions that you have before, the preconceived notions, but on their own terms or on terms that maybe are slightly more expansive than the terms that those films have outside in the marketplace, let's say. Um, but for distribution, you know, I think I mentioned that a Syrian love story no, nobody saw because, you know, Syria was so present in the news that so many things, had, there had been so mm. many significant and important films and that it didn't feel like there was space for another Syria film. I, I say that in the way that people were saying that to us. Yeah. Obviously, I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the devising of that release campaign was very tied to the fact that I'd worked with young refugees of 10 years in the UK. And I 100% knew that it was not, it's not just that there was an audience, but actually it was really important to understand the narrative of this film, which is how do you come to leave your home? And also, what does it do? And also, this isn't even about big questions or subjects. This is about people and the relatability of that family is in the way that they argue or the relatability of that family is in the way that they love each other. Mm. And it's in the way that you understand everything they're doing to try to stay together. And yet they know that they can't. You know, that's what's relatable to the film and that's what makes it powerful. We released Ayumi, you know, it, it was finished in 2020, in March 2020, just the, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Of course, we never found a distributor for that film, but of course, we believe that there are things that we can do with it and that it can do. And so 
you know, having the power to decide that narrative is also having the power to say, okay, we'll do things completely differently. We will build a website where you can access the film for free. We will spend all of our money on subtitles. We'll make sure those subtitles relate to the areas, the countries in the world that have a say on matters relating to Syria at the UN. Mm. And that is one way that we can have a kind of impact, but it's also one way that we can build audiences in lots of different spaces. With Even when I fall, one of the things that was most important to us was a question of framing. And, you know, when I first started working on that film, Sky, one of the two directors said to me, you know, I was really, I'd gotten some, I think I got this like news interview and I was really excited about it. And she said, well, let's see how it pans out. And I was like, oh no, but it's great. We're going to talk about the film and, you know, this, this will bring real interest to it. And she's like, well, let's just see. And she was right because what she meant was that people weren't actually interested in the film and the narrative that we were trying to tell. They were interested in kind of how bad the situation before the circus or like the previous circus had been. Mm. And that is actually not the point of the film. The point of the film is how do you, rec- like, how do you build? How do you kind of come out of a situation of bonded labor? How do you kind of overcome? How do you reclaim that narrative? And I was so, I was shocked actually to not be given the space to speak on the terms that I wanted to speak on. And I kept trying to bring this conversation back and it kept not slipping back into this space and you know I I really learned something there and I learned something that I continued to learn all the way through the making of that film which was that people do not want to understand women as survivors and so for us the most important thing in making that film and then in distributing that film was that these women were survivors these young people were survivors that victimhood was not the subject of this film this was also pre-Me Too I don't think that there was structure or language in the way that developed around that. I don't think the structures and languages are sufficient now, but I I was baffled and I continue to be baffled by the fact that we distributed that film because we had to. And because what was most important to us was that the way that we wanted to tell that story was respected. On the topic of learning, I'd love to know what you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career so far, or something that maybe you wish that you'd learned earlier. My biggest learning is do not work for free. I think this is really important for producers because I think so often you think that like you're the person that has to make things happen. You're the person who has to give something up so that other people can do things. You're the person who can defer your fee because it doesn't matter. You'll get your fee from something else or you can wait. I think I very much had that mentality for the first kind of decade of my work, which means essentially most of it. I think this is a really big problem. I think there are certain types of people who gravitate to that kind of space. I think I so often being in a position to give up or to defer a salary because I was being kept afloat by a different salary. But that essentially means that you're just working and working and working to enable something. And at the end of the day, if you don't respect yourself enough to have a fee when everyone else does, then little by little, essentially nobody else respects you enough to give you a fee when you could have one. I say this also in relation to I, I hold financiers really accountable for this. I have produced films that have been funded by public funding institutions in this country who have been willing for me to defer a fee, an entire fee. Mm. I think this is so problematic. And I think it's really difficult because at the beginning of your career, it's also very difficult to stand up for yourself when you're being made to feel like maybe 
you should be grateful to be in the position you're in. At the beginning of my career, it was very strange because I didn't believe myself to really be within the film space for a long time. You know, I, I think I was much more tentative about my role because people were much more tentative about it in what they projected to me as well. So within that dynamic, I think it's very easy to give up your worth in mm. monetary terms. And if this film industry is an industry, then frankly, what matters the most in terms of how you're respected within this space is money. I would love to know what a film uh, from a woman director is that you think is perhaps a hidden gem or just something that you'd like to take the time to recommend today. When I was thinking about what to talk about, the first thing that came to mind was a film called Sur la Planche or On the Edge by a Moroccan director called Leila Kilani. It was made about a decade ago. It's focuses on these four young women who all work in factories and want to escape their realities. And it's just got the most kind of desperate, kind of tense energy. I was looking at a review about it, which they talked about it in terms of black magic. And I really, there's something about the, the breath of this film that's so overwhelming, that's difficult to forget, that's kind of all-consuming. Leila Kilani is developing or in production on her next film. She's not made anything since. But I feel like this is a film that's so kind of particular, so iconic, so kind of present. So my other recommendation is a film called Dubia Hamra or Bloody Beans by Nariman Marie. And this is a film that it's, it's experimental in all the best senses of the word in, in that it's trying to make sense of a kind of concept that makes no sense. So revolution or colonial presence or domination. Mm -hmm. And so Nariman worked with a group of young, with a group of kids, in fact, in Algiers to recreate the independence movement. And it, it creates this kind of, this incredibly potent, kind of electric narrative um, with these kids who kind of think about questions of hunger and what it motivates you to do, or these questions of power and what it means to take someone hostage, what it means to kill, what it means to be free. And it's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly unusual. It's the kind of film that you must see in either, either on a really big screen or with really, really loud volume, because it just has this energy to it, mm -hmm. um, this kind of trance-like soundtrack and a playfulness. And I think it's, it's everything that the risk of documentary is, that kind of not knowing, that kind of being lost in a space and trying to work it out, that being open to being playful um, and to being challenged, I guess, but in ways that can make you understand and learn something much more than you thought you could. All of those things and colonial legacy, I think it addresses that question in a way that I think few films have done so kind of pertinently in a sense, because of course it's done not through words so much, but in this kind of attempt to grasp and understand Thank you for sharing those recommendations. And Elham, thank you so much for your time, first and foremost today. Thank you for the care and depth with which you responded to the questions. But also thank you for your films, because, yeah, I have actually can say I've seen all of them and I'm a, I'm a big fan. So thank oh, you so that's much. that's amazing. I have to say thank you for your questions, because I think it's really rare to kind of be considered in such depth and to kind of 
you know, see that somebody's paid attention to all of these different things that tie together what you've done and to know that you've watched all of these films and to feel it in the way that you ask questions. I think it's really, it's really moving, but it's really validating as well. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Music